I don't think there's enough to say about Fauci's emails. I don't think there's enough to say, especially when you've got an entire media apparatchik that wants to say, oh, that's Dr. Anthony Fauci. Oh, that's a good man right there. Oh, that's Dr. Anthony Fauci. He's, a, he's the kind of guy you want your, your kids to grow up to be like. You're Nicole Wallace on MSNBC, and you're just, oh, oh, you're just tripping all over yourself with just nothing but love for this man. Well, the true mark of someone is if they look good, even when their personal emails come out. So you, you pass the test that very few of us would, would pass. Dr. Anthony Fauci. You wouldn't pass the test? What do your emails look like, Nicole Wallace? She, she wouldn't pass the test. I make the assumption that every text I put out, every tweet I put out, every email I put out, it's all being recorded. It's all going to get used against me. I don't say anything that I'm not, you know, I, I think is wrong, although it is my private correspondence and I could be having a heart to heart with somebody that I may not have with somebody else. But dear Lord, what do your emails look like, Nicole? But let's take a step back and understand what it is we're looking at. And we're going to dig into this uh, with, with Phil Kirpin of American Commitment coming up. Me, I'm Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. So good to be with you on Facebook, Tony Katz Radio, Parlor, Instagram, Twitter, Tony Katz. And, of course, the phone number, 833-468-8669. 833-GOT-TONY. Let me know what you think of Fauci. Now, for those people who may have missed the story, let's take ourselves back to the recognition, to the realization uh, that Fauci's emails have come to light. This wasn't nefarious. This was a Freedom of Information Act request. FOIA, F-O-I-A, Freedom of Information Act. These are U.S. officials. You can ask for the information and it gets released to you. America's amazing. What these emails show, however is that there was, early on, conversations about two very important subjects, one of which was about the idea that some people were taking a look at COVID, right? You'll see, of course, we know it as COVID. You know it as coronavirus. Sometimes you'll see it as SARS-CoV-2. And uh, and you got to know that all these things are the same thing, right? By this stage, I think we all know it, but I always like to double check. Somebody was taking a look at it and said, if you really do look at it, there are some things here that could have been engineered. Engineered goes along the conversation of whether or not the Chinese were manipulating this in a lab. We know that the Chinese were manipulating this in a lab because Dr. Fauci sent an email to his associate, the deputy at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, N-A-N-I-A-I-D, NIAID, however you want to pronounce it. And that email said Hugh, his name is Hugh uh, Auchincloss. Hugh, it is essential that we speak this morning, or this AM. Keep your cell phone on. Read this paper as well as the email I will forward to you now. You will have tasks today that must be done. What does that email say? That email is a report. That report came from something called Nature Medicine. It was a journal. The title, A SARS-like Cluster of Circulating Back Coronaviruses Shows Potential for Human Emergence. 
human emergence in 2015, meaning this was not a surprise that it would go from bat to human, that it would cross the Rubicon, but rather they already knew it. And who wrote this? Dr. Shi Zhengli. You don't know the name, but you know the person because she was known as Batwoman. If you go back in your memory banks just a year ago, this was a conversation. Who was this doctor known for her research on bat coronaviruses at the Wuhan Institute of Virology? What is the response from Hugh, the deputy to Dr. Fauci? The paper you sent me says the experiments were performed before the gain-of-function pause in October 2014, but have since been reviewed and approved by NIH. He continues with, not sure what that means since Emily is sure that no coronavirus work has gone through the P3 framework. She will try to determine if we have any distant ties to this work abroad. Now, what are we talking about here? The paper you sent me says the experiments were performed before the gain-of-function pause, but have since been reviewed by the National Institutes of Health. That means that the Chinese lab, the Wuhan lab, Virology Institute, was working on gain-of-function. Now... Let us take a moment to listen to Senator Rand Paul, who has been all over Dr. Fauci, speaking with Laura Ingram on Fox News on what gain of function is. Two weeks ago in committee hearing, he said they did not fund any gain-of-function research. I quoted that specific paper. Right. So the very paper that he puts in the email, he says, oh, my goodness, we need to read this paper because we looks like we are actually funding gain-of-function research, which is where we juice up these viruses, take them from animals, and infect them into humans. He's admitting that to his underling. He's worried about this in February of last year. But only two weeks ago, he tells me, oh, it wasn't gain-of-function research. But in his email, in the subject line, he says, gain of function research. He was admitting it to his private underlings seven, eight, nine months ago. Gain of function research describes really anything in medical research where something is altered, moved, manipulated to increase uh, transmissibility or, or, or uh, you know, the type of pathogen that it is. And its purpose, because someone could ask, why would you do such a thing? Right? It's very, why, why, are we, why are we manipulating these coronaviruses in bats? Why would we do it? Because it'll help you predict emerging infectious diseases. And thus, if something leaks, well, you manipulated the virus in a way that it would be more apt to manipulate itself or work uh, in, in terms of uh, affecting others like human beings but go back to his own words there was dr fauci getting into a fight with Rand paul and oh did they attack Rand paul and oh do they hate Rand paul but there was dr fauci saying that the united states was not investing in gain of function yet here are emails from when this all started when the you know what hit the fan and things were spreading all over the place and smelling like you know what as well and the first thing that dr fauci did was worried that he was funding the gain-of-function research, which it seems from the response he was. 
how does one have faith in Dr. Anthony Fauci? And how do you take seriously the media apparatchik in America that says this? Well, the true mark of someone is if they look good, even when their personal emails come out. So you, you pass. Do you think he looks good right now? And by the way, I'm only focused on one email. There were thousands of pages. It's crazy. There is a researcher by the name of Peter Daszak. Who's Peter Daszak? He's a, a, a doctor, a zoologist, consultant. He is an expert on disease ecology. He's the president of EcoHealth Alliance. What did he say to Dr. Anthony Fauci? Thank you for standing up and stating that the scientific evidence supports a natural origin for COVID-19 from a bat to human spillover, not a lab release from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. April 18th, 2020. In January and February, there were already these conversations of possibly engineered, and look at what we were funding. Look at what was at least possible. And now here's uh, a, a, an esteemed colleague saying, good for you for pushing back and not admitting the truth, maybe. And I say maybe, because I'm not saying that we know for sure. The only thing we know for sure is that Dr. Anthony Fauci cannot be trusted. The only thing we know for sure is that members of the media hate Donald Trump so much, Nicole Wallace can't be trusted. She's not a journalist. She's a propagandist. Would I be so far out of the realm? I mean, we, we, we've called people uh, a Baghdad uh, Bob. Is she not playing the part of Tokyo Rose? By the way, the name... Uh, that that was given uh, to the English-speaking radio broadcasters of Japanese propaganda. It's not propaganda to say, oh, Dr. Fauci, you're such a decent human being. Here is an email from David Falkenflick, who we've talked about on this show before from NPR. Just, just the weirdest, weirdest cat. Here's an email that says, I cover media and flow of information for, to public for NPR, and I'm also a host. You told a colleague the report you couldn't comment on coronavirus was taken out of context. In what way? What does he say? I have never been inhibited from interacting with the press. They won't mention the fact that everything they said about Donald Trump muzzling Dr. Fauci is completely and totally untrue. He was never muzzled. At the same time, media worked overtime to ensure that he would be treated well because after all, the target was Trump. Dear Tony, this note is between longtime colleagues. Comes from Kira Phillips over at ABC News. The entire coronavirus story and the handling of it has really escalated into an unexpected journey. I want you to know how much I have respect. Oh, this is just getting too good. This is just getting, you know what this needs, producer Ari? A dramatic reading. 
was that a cue for me to get the dramatic? No, no, music? I got it. I got it. I got it. I was my my stuff was just working slow. I want you to know how much I have respected you professionally and medically for nearly 20 years. I also want you to know that I have appreciated how we have communicated throughout these years about threats to our world's health and how honest and transparent you have always been. I know you are in a unique situation and I want you to know that I respect that and would never put you in a situation with my correspondence that would jeopardize you in any way. With that said, I hope you can keep me informed, off the record if need be, so I can continue to cover this story honestly and fairly. With utmost respect, Kira. You're making sure that you wouldn't jeopardize him? What does that even What does that even mean? Now, maybe it could be taken in a rather sweet way, like, look, I'm not here to try and screw you over. I just want the information so I can then talk about the information. I would never jeopardize you. What does that mean? Is this what journalists do? When I set up an interview with people, I don't agree to give over the questions. I have often said, look, I'm not trying to play gotcha. I just want to ask the questions and get the answers. That's all I'm looking for. But I'm not a journalist. I am a com- I do commentary. This is what I do by nature. It's a different beast. Here we have journalists bending over backwards to say, "Oh no, I would never make you look bad." And then when told something that doesn't make Trump look bad, they don't report that. If you have an email to NPR going back to February 28th, 2020, And Dr. Fauci says, I have never been inhibited from interacting with the press. Why would anybody say he's being muzzled? Why wasn't that put to rest? How dare you say this? He says no. He told me that directly. The press will do anything to destroy Donald Trump. They wanted to win. The politics mattered more than anything. And that's the part two of these emails. Fauci does not look good. Fauci looks terrible in many of these emails. But worse is the media. That didn't look into conversations that wouldn't engage subjects that called you crazy and a conspiracy theorist for even thinking it. And when they knew things weren't happening, they still allowed those stories to be told. Oh, oh, he's being muzzled, don't you know? He was never muzzled. He was never silenced. He was never kept from the microphone. And you know what? He damn well should have been. The total lack of faith that we now have in our institutions I honestly don't know how it gets built back but how can you trust these people you were indeed funding the research you did indeed have the connection and this is just the start of where these emails are we're going to get into more of this with uh, Phil Kirpin to kind of dig deep and then the latest on the data with COVID uh, there's a, there's a reason to wear a mask? No. Turns out there is not. More to get to. I'm Tony Katz. So the world is running out of Karens. No, I mean the name. People are no longer naming their kid Karen because who wants to be a Karen? Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. It's true what we have done to the poor Karens of the world, which was a crazy popular name, peaked in 65. 
There were 32,000-plus girls named Karen that year, almost 2% of all of them. In 2020, it's 831st on the list. Um, and, uh, yeah, 2020, it was 831st on the list, and that fell 171 spots from 2019. Lowest ranking on the list since 1979. Um, Karen will disappear. Karen will disappear. Now, it started disappearing, you know, uh, really uh, uh, about 2010, 2011. Nobody wants that. No, Now we, our problem is we get into... Names that we really are reaching on. I mean, if if Elon Musk is going to name his kid some kind of mathematical equation, right? Okay, it was kind of cool when Prince did it, and it was just a symbol, but uh, it's a stretch. But the the go-tos are gone. Pretty soon, there's going to be no one named Ari anymore, Ari. That's going to be out. I I mean, that's fine. I'd like to be uh, one of a kind. Right. Well, you you are not because you know, Ari Ari was a big name for a while, big name for a while amongst uh, people who didn't want to name their kids with manly sounding names. That must be it. That's not it. No, no that's cl- not it. Definitely. I I really do. I feel awful for these women. I feel absolutely positively awful for them because it, it, it you, you got to live with this. Like, I, w- I wonder if you could find out how many women named Karen changed their name. I don't know. Maybe the number's five. But, like, five people felt that it was insane enough. You know, a Karen is somebody who complains to the manager about everything. A Karen is somebody who yells at you about not wearing a mask. That's that's what a Karen is. And it, they apply to guys, too. I don't know what you call the guy version. I, I think you call him a Karen. And it's it became so so ubiquitous. Oh, I feel for them so badly. Fauci's emails? Exactly how bad is this? And where are we with the data? Phil Kirpin of American Commitment breaks down the data like no one else. He is scheduled to be with us next. On Facebook, Tony Katz Radio, Parlor, Instagram, Twitter, Tony Katz. Go to TonyKatz.com for the podcast for everything. This is Tony Katz Today. Phil Kirpin scheduled to join us. Tony Katz, guys, good to be with you. What is it to be taken from Dr. Fauci's emails? This it wasn't a leak. I make sure we're clear about that. It's not a leak. It was a FOIA request, Freedom of Information Act request. These emails that share with us things that were being communicated as COVID was, for lack of a better word, breaking. And what do we know? that there were conversations about whether or not any level of dollars from the United States had gone to the Wuhan Virology Lab, funding gain-of-function research, conversations about the possible engineering of data. In the meantime, we're seeing data on COVID, and you got to ask, not only are masks ever needed again, but exactly how much to the future uh, can we start uh, moving? Phil Kirpin, AmericanCommitment.org, at Kirpin, K-E-R-P-E-N, on Twitter. Let's start with those Fauci emails. I see them as damning, but also possibly informative. Where are you on the emails you have seen from this FOIA request? Well, there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. To me, what was uh, probably the most 
least, uh, you know, sort of damning for Fauci was kind of the fire drill that he had with his staff with the uh, under the subject line important, where he kind of asked his staff uh, if it was true that they had funded the uh, Wuhan labs gain of function research. And uh, he sent this paper along from 2015 that claimed that they had. And his uh, staff person said, well, we didn't fund it directly, but, you know, maybe we funded it indirectly. And he said, I have tasks for you that you must do today. Call me immediately. And, uh, and there's some redactions as well. So we don't know all of that. But, you know, just fr from what we can see from that day, it, it looks to me pretty clear that Fauci knew that, you know, the U.S. taxpayer money was going to that lab, uh, you know, through an intermediary. And I think that informs a lot of the other emails, the efforts to, uh, you know, cover up the fact that it very possibly came from that lab and to insist that it, it happened naturally. Uh, you know, he had a pretty strong incentive to do that after he found out that, that we were funding it. And by the way, Tony, I don't think he knew before the fact that we were funding that lab because it seems he was surprised to learn that in the email. But he's certainly known it since February 2020. See, I took that a little bit call. differently. Let, 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 me, let me throw a devil's advocate at you, Phil, because it, this is exactly what Senator Rand Paul was saying. Two weeks ago, he told me we didn't fund anything. Was he surprised that possibly the U.S. was funding? this lab or was he somebody saying oh my gosh is someone gonna be tying this dollar back to me and it was more of a fear than surprise your take uh, I think it was both I think it was both that's just how I read it uh, he seemed to be uh you know, it, it seemed to me news to him. You know, you're reading it on a page. Who knows if I'm if if I got the correct impression or not? But that that's how I took it. Talking to Phil Kirpin of AmericanCommitment.org, org. As you go through some of these emails, what struck you as? Wait a second, that is not what we were told. Well, uh, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that, that's a little bit surprising in that regard. I mean, I think the uh, – to, to me, though, the email that was the most surprising, the revelation that was the most surprising, and I don't even know for sure, uh, you know, maybe it was a mistake or I don't know, but, you know, the, the email from uh, Peter Daszak or Daszak, I don't know how you pronounce it exactly, the, the guy from Eco Health Alliance, which was the uh, intermediary group through which taxpayer money flowed to the Wuhan lab. Uh, he had this email where he uh, thanked uh, Fauci effusively for going on TV and saying, you know, it was natural. It didn't come from a lab. And there's a whole paragraph of that that is redacted, uh, that is blocked out. Um, but it is not redacted under the uh, FOIA exemptions that we typically see. You usually see a lot of four, five, and six exemptions. Uh, I had never seen a seven exemption before, so I actually had to look up what it means. And a seven exemption means that it is a law enforcement record that could compromise ongoing proceedings. And the fact that they had a seven exemption code on a paragraph in that email, uh, unless somebody made a mistake, that means there's a law enforcement proceeding underway, uh, which, of course, we don't, we don't 
you know, that that's very surprising to me, because certainly we haven't seen anything public about any law enforcement proceeding that might be implicated uh, by an email, you know, between Dashik and Fauci about whether it came from a lab. Well, I'll be keeping an eye on that because I'm staring at that email where uh, you have uh, Dashik, D-A-S-Z-A-K is the last name, saying to Dr. Fauci, from my perspective, your comments are brave and coming from your trusted voice will help dispel the myths being spun around the virus's origins. Uh, so it was a B, a 7A, each one of those in parentheses. We'll keep an eye on that. This whole idea of origins and how there were emails that said, hey, this this does have some markers of possible engineering, not saying that it definitely was engineered. And yet you had people like Senator Tom Cotton. You had others talking about leaking from a lab or other possible issues. And of course, they were all called conspiracy theorists. When we see people like Nicole Wallace being effusive in her praise of Dr. Fauci, you see some uh, emails from ABC people. I would never jeopardize you. Uh, CNN saying this is just these are just emails from a from a good Frank guy. We played politics with a virus, in my view, as opposed to working towards defeating a virus. In your view, as somebody who studies the data, not a doctor, just somebody who's really good with the data, understanding the data, breaking it down, being able to dig into the reports, if we had played less politics and engaged more in open conversation, could we have done America better than we did? Oh, I definitely think so. I mean, look, I think that, um, you know, the main concern, the primary principal concern of our public health officials at the beginning of this appeared to be... uh, you know, covering themselves, avoiding getting blamed for it. Yeah, that's really where they were focused uh, when they should have been focused on understanding how it's transmitted and having effective uh, response. And instead, we ended up with a highly ineffective response uh, that was very, very costly. We destroyed a lot of businesses and jobs and uh, disrupted a lot of lives, including children's lives. And it was extremely ineffective because, you know, 100 million plus people ended up getting infected anyway. It really didn't stop uh, the virus in any meaningful way. And so I think we had sort of an incredibly bad response, uh, sort of maximum downside in terms of cost and very little, if any, benefit. And I think if they'd been paying more attention from the beginning to how the virus was being transmitted, which was airborne, something they denied for a year, uh, and focused on, you know, instead of locking everyone at home, said, do everything outdoors where it doesn't spread. And, uh, you know, you get well, vent- you know, instead of masking people, ventilate the heck out of indoor spaces, so there's fresh air blowing through, uh, we could have had a much, much lower burden of this disease, uh, you know, in the year or so before we got the vaccine. And it's very unfortunate that instead of looking at the data and understanding it, because all of it was already available if we had been paying better attention, uh, you know, the the guy who's supposed to be at the top of the whole response seems most concerned about uh, avoiding any blame or consequence himself uh, rather than anything else. Talking to Phil Kirpin on Twitter, at Kirpin, K-E-R-P-E-N, from AmericanCommitment.org. Let's get into data, because this is where you play. And, of course, we saw Israel showing uh, that the Pfizer vaccine may have increased cases of myocarditis, uh, inflammation of the heart uh, in 16 to to basically 39-year-olds, really in that 16 to 19-year-old kind of space, which is going to cause more parents to say, I'm not so sure about getting my kid vaccinated. There's going to be a fight with schools. You retweeted a piece that there was a total of 337 
kids that tested positive for COVID in the hospital in the whole country the week of May 21st. Do you see the value in vaccines for kids 12 to 17? You know, I think that, uh, you know, the, the vaccine is clearly net beneficial for seniors. And, you know, I think pretty much everyone agrees, which is why, you know, 85 percent of seniors have, have gotten the vaccine. Uh, they've had high uptake everywhere. You start going down the age distribution, you know, 40, you know, 50, 60, 50, 40. It, it's probably still a good idea. You get down to 30, 20 kids. It's a much tougher call because the acuity of the virus is so low in younger populations, especially in the pediatric populations, that you have to think about what, what are we preventing versus, you know, you know, even if, you know, let's set aside the more serious adverse events for a second. Just the fact that you're probably going to be pretty sick for a day or two after that second dose in terms of, you know, fever and chills and fatigue and headache. Uh, that might be worse for a kid than getting COVID because it's so low acuity in children. And so I think, in my view, is that um, it's fine to make it available, uh, but we really should not mandate or require or make it a condition of school or any other activities for, for younger populations or especially children because it is a very reasonable decision, in my judgment, not to choose to get it in that age range. And you really aren't endangering anyone who's at a high risk because they themselves have all had the vaccine available to them. And so I, I think that uh, instead of having this, you know, this huge fight over do or don't vaccinate all the kids, we should take the freedom approach, which is to say, we'll, we'll make it available, but it's not going to be required. And, and you know, parents can assess. There are some children who are, you know, maybe who have cancers or other high risk conditions where, you know, I think it would make sense for them to get vaccinated. Uh, but I, I think by and large, uh, for most people, it makes sense not to vaccinate your kids. But, you know, I think a parent should decide that. I, I don't think that government or schools or anyone else should be deciding that. But we know they're going to play in, in that space. We know they're going to talk about wanting to keep kids in masks. The data keeps showing us, and we have discussed it, uh, that the mask, and even from Dr. Fauci's own emails, going back to that, maybe stopping what he referred to as gross drop you know, harsh, you know, big, uh, big pieces, if you will, for lack of a better word. But it doesn't stop COVID. Something they knew from the beginning that a mask does not stop COVID. It stops something, but not COVID. Does this put an end to the idea of masks in schools or indoors or anywhere else in the foreseeable future? Uh, I really think it should. Uh, we've now got a tremendous amount of data. By the way, it, this is for, for, for almost all infectious diseases, certainly for influenza. It's, it's the respiratory aerosols from normal speaking, not from coughing or sneezing, uh, that actually causes most of the transmission. And so, you know, you, you, they're so small that these typical masks that you get, they, they just don't stop. Uh, you know, 99% of the aerosols are going to pass right through or go around. Uh, with these typical masks that are being used. And I think that's why you really haven't seen uh, much, if any, impact from them uh, when they're used in community settings. They just they, they don't stop much of the infectious virus, if any. And so, uh, you know, it, it's easy to say, well, you know, what's a little inconvenience, uh, you know, if you can stop. But, but it has no effect, and it's more than little, the inconvenience. I think it's considerable, especially for school children who've been asked to wear them all day long for eight hours. Uh, I think... Uh, it is an enormous 
uh, imposition, and it prevents people from being able to live normal lives. And I, I just think there was basically no benefit from it all along. Uh, maybe very, very, very limited uh, benefit. But at this point where the virus has receded to very low levels, uh, I, I would hope that we could drop them everywhere. But unfortunately, Tony, this is, this is becoming another one of these things uh, where it's become a political dividing line. And you look at the map of the country right now of where they have or don't have masks in schools, and it looks like the map of the country of where schools were open or closed six months ago. And it's the Democrat areas, the liberal states and liberal uh, localities in states that leave it up to the localities, and some states are starting to prohibit them statewide uh, to not allow the liberal areas within their states to do it. But it really is, uh, it's just happening along political lines, which I think tells you how poor the scientific basis for it is. Um, but unfortunately, for people who are in liberal areas, and I'm in one here, uh, it's, it's not a great outlook for the fall uh, to have the kids having normal school. Phil Kirpin, AmericanCommitment.org, on Twitter, at Kirpin, K-E-R-P-E-N. Phil, I appreciate you taking the time. More to get to. I'm Tony Katz. John Gabriel posted a very interesting story. John Gabriel is the editor over at Ricochet.com, and I like Ricochet quite a bit. But this was on Twitter. Sharing a story from someone else, it's from Slate. Slate Slate.com is a left-leaning outfit. And uh, here's the headline. Our kid's Japanese godfather gave her a kimono. Can she wear it? We'd never want her thinking somebody else's culture is a costume. This is America today. A radically inept place for inept people to freely share their ineptness. Maybe inept isn't the right word. Sad, pathetic, ignorant, foolhardy. Are you blanking kidding me? Your godfather, your child's godfather, which by the way, I don't have godparents for my kids. Jews don't do that, right? I don't know. I, do, you have, do you have godparents, Ari? No. Yeah, I don't, I don't have godparents. Um, uh, our kid's Japanese godfather gave her a kimono. Can she wear it? Do you think that goddad gave the kid the kimono just to screw the kid over? <laughs> she's going she's gonna to wear the, the kimono. And, oh, man, she's going to get it from the peoples who are woke? That'll teach her. What... That's nuts. Why would you not wear it? And by the way, where are you going to wear it to? And maybe this is a conversation of how ridiculous people are when they make the claim of cultural appropriation. Oh, you can't wear a sombrero. Yeah, you can. Sure you can. Feel free. It's a sombrero. You can wear what you like. The idea of cultural appropriation is the idea of keeping people from being able to experience other cultures and then say, see, you're a racist because you're not willing to experience other cultures. And sometimes it's not an experience. Sometimes it's just a very large hat. Now, someone's going to say, Tony, that's so offensive. The sombrero. Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not making fun of sombreros. 
I'm proving the point. And people getting upset with me are equally proving the point. You give your goddaughter a kimono and you have to question whether or not she could wear it in public? Maybe the other people screaming cultural appropriation don't matter at all. Maybe their opinion is garbage nonsense and you shouldn't pay any attention to it. Say, oh yeah, my godfather gave this to me. Isn't this gorgeous? Oh, I love it. I love that he should share this with me. Oh, he's Japanese. He wanted me to have this. Oh, love it. If you can't say that, you can't stand up to these people. You're right. Don't wear the kimono. I'm Tony Katz.